0: Revelation 2 starting from verse 12 to the angel of the church in Pergamum write these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword I know where you live where Satan has his throne yet you remain true to my name you did not renounce your faith in me not even in the days of Antipas my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives Whoever have ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep Secrets. I will not impose any other burden on you, except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule over them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God.
1: Evening everybody, my name is Phil, I'm the assistant minister here. It's lovely to, to see you, I do hope to get the chance to meet you afterwards. You've got an outline on your sheets if you want to take notes, and do keep the passage open. I think uh, we're at, what is it, the third week we've been looking at the, uh, these letters in Revelation. I suspect if uh, you'd been receiving these letters through the mail, by the, by the third week you wouldn't be too excited <laughs> to go down and find what's on the doormats. They're fairly punchy, aren't they? But the Lord Jesus speaks truth for our good. We'll be thinking about that a bit more next week. Let me ask you a question, though, as we start tonight, which is, where do you think in the world Christianity is under greatest threat? North Korea? Egypt? Syria? Actually, the church is growing in each of those places. Iran, it's growing very quickly. Now, true, in the Middle East, a wave of violent persecution, especially with the rise of Islamic State, means that some of the historic Christian populations have almost been exterminated. But, but actually, the truth is that most of the places in the world where Christianity is declining are places where, well, Christianity is not popular, but there's no persecution. It's places like Western Europe where no one's going to shoot you for being a Christian but it's places where we're tempted as Christians to compromise, to just fit in with the world around us for the sake of an easier life. And the truth is that history shows us, and Jesus warns us in these letters before us tonight, that gentle compromise can be more dangerous to our faith than brutal persecution. Think about it, when, when do you compromise? When do you compromise your faith? When do you compromise with the values of the culture? When, what situations lead you to compromise values that you hold yourself? Now usually it's not the big, will you renounce your faith? Will you admit that Jesus doesn't exist? Actually, actually most of us, we're unlikely to, to fold at that particular moment. It's much more likely, it's the the gradual loss of distinctiveness with the little decisions. See, we tend to compromise because where we feel that at this particular point, the thing I'm being asked to do, or the thing I would kinda like to do, it's just not that big a deal. And so it feels like I'm not selling out. I can fit in, I I can do what I want without really selling out, and so I compromise. We don't want to stand out. We don't want life to be difficult. We don't want to be marginalized or excluded. And so if we feel that we can fit in with our friends, if we feel that we can fit in with the culture of our workplace without totally selling out on our faith, well, it's very tempting just to flex on a few points, just to go quiet on a few issues, things that don't feel like they're massively important. No one's, no one's asking me to deny that I'm a Christian. And so we keep quiet, we agree, we assimilate because we've convinced ourselves it's not too important. But Jesus is going to warn us tonight that he actually has a very different perspective. He's going to warn us tonight that we don't get to choose which of his commands matter and which of his commands, well, you can take it or leave it. That we're to obey him in everything, in all that he says, if we're his people. Now, as I've prayed about this letter this week, um, in particular the, the letter to Pergamum, which is where we're going to spend our time tonight, I've been convinced that this really is a very important issue for us. And most of us here don't face real brutal persecution. Most of us. It may be that some here do. But all of us, all of us face daily the fierce pressure to compromise. We feel it daily. The pressure... To fit in, to follow the cultural majority, not to rock the boat. And God wants to challenge us. He challenges us you are to be salt and light, you are to be different. And that difference is for the blessing and benefit of the world around us. He doesn't want you to live a small, mediocre life. And so the question is are you willing to let Jesus challenge your standards, your ideas? your behavior tonight. Let's pray for his help as we listen to what he says. Our Father God, as we uh, look at a letter that perhaps is quite close to us, we pray that you would give us discerning minds that we would see and understand which parts uh, perhaps are particularly relevant to us. We pray too that you would give us soft hearts, that we would be willing to repent where we've got things wrong. Amen. Now, this letter to Pergamum is one of the three letters in the middle of the seven letters that Jesus sends to the worldwide church at the beginning of Revelation. And all three of these churches, they've got some things right, but there are some things where they're just not behaving as they should. All of them have allowed sinful, worldly patterns of living to to infect the church life. And so all of them, we find, have compromised And in particular, we see they've lapsed in sexual immorality and idolatry. Now there is perhaps some progression uh, if you wanted to read them um, through a few times later. I think Pergamum has some who hold to false teaching. By the time you get to Thyatira, there are false teachers within the church itself. And in Sardis, most of them are now described as soiled, which in Revelation seems to be language for those who've given into sexual immorality in particular. And the church is warned it's about to die. But as I said, we're just going to focus on Pergamum. And what we'll see is just two things. They were faithful under the pressure of persecution, but they were failing to resist the temptation to compromise. Uh, So firstly, uh, faithful to Jesus under fire. Let's look at verses 12 to 13. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. I've got a sharp sword and I know where you live. Okay, it's quite an intimidating start to the letter. But it's also a little bit awkward today of all days. I don't really want to come to church and hear about a religious leader with a sword. But this is a very different kind of sword Jesus is always in the beginning of these letters, picking up part of the vision in chapter 1. So look back to 1.16 and we'll see what kind of sword it is. In his right hand, he doesn't hold a sword. In his right hand, he holds seven stars. He holds the churches. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His sword is the word of God, not a physical sword to cut people, but his words of power and judgment the Lord judges and rules by the sword of his spirit, the word of God. But it is an intimidating opening. There's no denying that. There is, a, if you like, the sound of distant thunder, a kind of ominous note when you hear, the oh, he's not telling them about, I am the one who holds the stars, who cares for the, sh- the church. I am the wise one, the good one. No, no, he warns them. I am the one whose word is a sharp sword. The word that cuts through lies and brings judgment. Ominous. But actually the next words are very encouraging. When he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. It's actually very wonderful. He's saying, you may feel forgotten. You may feel hard pressed. You may feel that nobody knows, understands, or is able to stand with you in the troubles you face. But Jesus says, I know. I know where you live. I see when the door is shut to the world and the struggles you have in private. I hear what is said to you. I see what is done to you. All the circumstances of your life, all the struggles that you go through, all the difficulties and discouragements that no one else is aware of, and the Lord Jesus says to you, I see. I know where you live. They're wonderful words. And for the church at Pergamum, Jesus knows that where they live is where Satan has his throne. What an extraordinary way to describe a place. A few years ago, I was driving through um, rural Kenya, and we came to a town which proudly proclaimed this, the Birmingham of Kenya. <laughs> now, the Birmingham of Kenya, with apologies to those who hark from uh, Britain's second city, let's, let's not mess, um, it's not the most... You know, It seems an odd boast, Uh, but compared with the nickname of Pergamum, Satan's throne, oh, that that is unflattering. I think we can put that away now. I mean, what a nickname to give the place. Satan's throne, twinned with, I mean, it's a... Why? In part, I think it's explained by what comes next. uh, The second half of verse 13. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So this is a place where Christians have already been martyred, killed, not because they were behaving badly, but just because they love Jesus. They've been killed. That's Satan's handiwork. You can understand why he says this is a place that is Satan's throne. But there is another reason uh, why you might dub Pergamum Satan's throne, and that's because of the temples that dominated the city. In particular, there was a great temple to Asclepius, which is the Greek healing god, whose emblem was a huge serpent. And of course, Satan, in the Bible, is pictured again and again as the serpent. Perhaps even more importantly, in 29 BC, Pergamon petitioned the Roman Emperor Augustus and became the first city in the entire empire to have a temple dedicated to the worship of a living Roman emperor. And throughout Pergamon, they were proud of their worship of the Roman emperor, And actually, as you read through the New Testament, you see that it's this requirement that the subjects of the empire must worship the emperor that so often causes the friction that means the Christians butt up against the authorities and get in trouble. So for instance, in Acts 17.7, Paul's second missionary journey in around AD 49, already at that point, he's hauled before the authorities in Thessalonica, accused of defying Caesar's decrees by saying there's another king called Jesus. For the Christian, it is Jesus who must be our ultimate allegiance, our true king. And so, periodically, at different times in different places in history, from Rome in the first century to China in the 21st century, if you have a higher allegiance to Jesus, you'll get in trouble with the authorities. And yet through it all, the church at Pergamum remained true to the name of Jesus, verse 13. It's a slightly odd phrase, to be true to the name of Jesus. In the New Testament world, that's just a natural way of saying uh, you're a Christian. To be a Christian is to bear the name of Jesus. Now, we're not a big sports shirt type church. There's one or two around tonight. Uh, But the times people wear their shirts tend to be when your team has won. So it may be St. Patrick's Day, but I do not spy very many green shirts after the absolute humiliation that the Irish team faced in Cardiff yesterday. It obviously pains me to say that from the front, uh, but it makes me feel better about England's poor second half at Twickenham. But not many people wear their team's shirt when they've just been humiliated. Even fewer people wear their team's shirt when it might get you more than just humiliation. So you don't see many Arsenal fans wearing red shirts wandering around Chelsea on a match day because you're likely to be given various pieces of advice and uh, you may even get thumped. You, know, you don't tend to wear the shirt if it's humiliating or it might be dangerous to you. And here is a church, though, that has continued to wear the shirt bearing the name of Jesus, even when it might cost them their lives in the days of Antipas. They walked through a city where Satan lives, where his throne was established, and they still proudly wore the shirt, Jesus. I think that's a little challenge to us. Do I wear the shirt proudly at church, but cover it up when I go out into the workplace, my family, my community, when I'm with people who don't really approve of Christian things, people who might mock me, think less of me because of it, might exclude me or despise me. Well, Jesus is delighted with a, with a church that bears his name, that is willing to wear the shirt, to be known as his. But while the church at Pergamum has battlefield courage, Satan has changed his strategy and they are failing through compromise. Now, my brother was in the army, and he was, uh, he was in the Highlanders, and his soldiers were a seriously brave bunch of men. I mean, you've got to be brave to join a regiment that, in its history, has regularly run into battle wearing skirts. You know, that is, I don't know what the definition of brave is for you, but that's got to be up there. <laughs> to, to go wearing a skirt and running into bullets. Yeah, I mean, it's madness or it's bravery, it's probably both. But uh, you could not get these guys to dishonor the name of the regiment, with physical threats. On the battlefield, they were incredibly brave. It doesn't matter what you threaten them with. They will be true to the honor of the regiment. No way you could intimidate, frighten, cower, threaten them into dishonoring the regiment. But, but my brother spent quite a lot of time appearing in court as a character witness, um, or conduct unbecoming, shall we say, uh, pleading the very good character of these people who could never be threatened into shaming the regiment, but when faced with the temptation of a few too many pints, oh, they could bring all sorts of shame on the regiment. Very, very brave in conflict, but they just compromised all their standards when they came under temptation. Not too dissimilar, actually, from what's going on at Pergamum. Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. So they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Now, I don't think he means literally they're following the teaching of Balaam. I'll explain why. I think he's saying, you've fallen for the strategy of Balaam. Now, Balaam was a pagan priest. 1500 years before this, when God had rescued his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt, and they're being led through the desert, through the wilderness to the promised land, they have to pass through the territory of Moab, and the Moabite king, a wicked man named Balak, hires this pagan priest Balaam to curse the Israelites so he can destroy them. And Balaam is paid a lot of money to do this, and he stands up and seven times he tries to curse the Israelite people, God's people. And every time he opens his mouth, the Holy Spirit speaks blessing through him. They try as a frontal strategy I want to destroy these people, curse them for me, and it fails completely. But the story doesn't end there. Because although in Numbers 22 to 24, Balaam's attack is defeated. In Numbers 31, Balaam goes to the king of Moab with a very different strategy. He says, don't try and attack them. Tempt them. And while the Israelites are in camp, he sends from the sounds of it the shrine prostitutes and they tempt the Israelite men to sexual immorality. Weak-willed men fall for it and then start indulging in idol worship, worshiping false gods. And the plan just works brilliantly. So when Jesus says, there are some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, he's saying, look, there are lots in your church who if a mob, came and said, 'We we want to destroy your church. Where are all the Christians? They wouldn't be afraid to stand up and say, I'm a Christian, take me. But when Satan's employed temptation, and offered compromise. They failed completely. Now there's another group then identified in verse 15. Likewise, you also have some who you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We can't be sure who they were, but it seems to be most likely that they are that's the, the name in, in John's day for those who are in Balaam's mess. So it seems to be a group of people who are saying, look, it's all right not to keep strictly to God's laws when it comes to sex. And it's okay to be involved in idol feasts, eating food sacrificed to idols. It's not a big deal. I think that's what's going on. So the Nicolaitans are the people at Pergamum who are basically following exactly what Balaam did 1,500 years before. Now, one of the key things to work out here is why do they compromise on these issues? Verse 14, do you see what the issues are? Sexual immorality and food sacrifice to idols. Now, I think that's key because it's the same issue again and again and again in the New Testament. Uh, look at Thyatira 2.20. Nevertheless, you have, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. In writing to the non Jewish churches in Acts 15, the Great Council of Jerusalem says, Look, okay, there's a, you don't need to follow the Old Testament laws, but whatever happens, avoid sexual immorality and food sacrificed to idols. 1 Corinthians, Paul spends long chapters addressing sexual immorality, food sacrificed to idols, again and again in the New Testament, when the letters are addressing churches that haven't got a Jewish background, but uh, people who've been converted out of a pagan culture they have to address the issues of sexual immorality and food sacrificed to idols idol worship why because those are just the things that are seen as okay in the culture of the day they're part of everyday life i mean the roman empire was renowned for sexual immorality in particular if you're a powerful man you're expected to have sex with whoever you want whenever you want whether they like it or not it's just normal And much religious worship involved shrine prostitutes. It was an enormously sexually immoral culture. As to idolatry, well, in a diverse empire, one of the key bonds that unified the the Roman Empire was that you could worship any god you like, but so long as you also worshipped the emperor. And historians tell us that at this time, if you wanted to do business, you had to be part of a trade guild. You know, professional body, our equivalent to the Law Society or the General Teaching Council or the Association of Bearded Baristas or whatever, you know, your, your professional body is. To be part of that professional body involves worship of the emperor, offering sacrifices to the emperor. That's what happened at the regular meetings of the trade groups. So, idol worship was just just kind of part of doing business. It was just normal, it was the air they breathed. So you can see why the Christians at Pergamum might compromise on these two issues. It's just, it's not that big a deal, really. I mean, yep, I know, we, we shouldn't, there's stuff in the Bible saying no, but it's not, like, it's not like being racist or judgmental or something like that. I mean, it's not serious like murder they compromise on these things because these are the things that in the Roman Empire are just normal. And because everybody views them as normal, even though the Bible clearly says no, it's just, they just find it easy to think, well, it can't be that important. I mean, nobody else thinks it is. Is it that serious to flex at this point? Do we really have to be all awkward and and narrow here? Can't we just, learn something from our culture? Can't we uh, accommodate a little? Jesus says no. So what then are the equivalents for us, I guess is the question. What's the equivalent of food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality for us? What are the things that are so normal and pervasive in our culture that although we do know the Bible says we shouldn't, we're tempted to think it can't be that big a deal. I mean, we would never disobey the Bible's strong condemnations of racism because in our culture, nobody would ever encourage us to do that. So we're never going to disobey that. But where are the areas we're going to compromise? Well, I chatted with a number of you this week to, to see what you think, where you feel the, the squeeze. And uh, a number of things, a number of issues came up again and again. One, uh, we want to tell other people about Jesus. Those of us who are Christians, but our culture says all beliefs and religions are equally valid, and it's it's arrogant to tell anybody they're wrong. And so I know that we feel that pressure to compromise. We're willing to speak about Jesus if people ask us. I'll, I'll tell you about Jesus if people ask. But yeah, saying that He is the only way of salvation, we we just compromise. We go quiet on that. We, we wouldn't share our faith with somebody who already has a belief system. And so we compromise because our culture is very clear that all beliefs are equal. Uh, a few of you mentioned that um, for us in 21st century London, uh, the equivalent of the sexual immorality at Pergamum is sexual immorality. I mean, <laughs> after all, you know, look at, have you seen the London buses? Where you can, you know, pretty much every bus has an advert for Tinder encouraging casual sex hookups on it. I mean, it doesn't use quite those words, of course, but that's what it is. We're a culture with a Roman attitude to sex increasingly. It's easy for us to think, yes, I know the Bible says it's, it's wrong, but it's not that big a deal. You know, you don't want to be all pharisaical about it. It's not like theft or racism or murder or being judgmental. And so we compromise. Sharing a room or a bed when we're dating. Going away on holiday just the two of us. We go further than we know we should sexually. We don't honor the person we claim we love and we don't honor God's commands for holiness and purity. But it doesn't feel that serious an issue to flex a little on because look at our culture. We want to be popular. We want to be liked, followed. It's a high value in our culture to be liked and affirmed. And many of us are keen to be Christian, but what do we do when it costs us socially? When we hit a point where our views on sexuality or euthanasia or abortion are deemed culturally repulsive, we know that if we admit to following what the Bible says, if we speak up, we'll be seen as bigots or judgmental, and so we're tempted to compromise and go quiet. We live in a culture where career is a very high value. We want to get ahead. And, and so we're tempted to convince ourselves, God's, I know he says some stuff about work, but I don't, it's, it's not that important to him. You know, It's as if we get to the, the office door and say, Jesus, it was lovely to see you. I'll see you again at 6 p.m. Do have a nice day. Just bye. And we go into the door, and he's not really that interested in what goes on in the office. and So we're tempted to compromise with the culture in the office with the way people are treated, with turning an eye, blind eye to dodgy figures or whatever it is. The temptation to sell out or compromise is a very real temptation for us because in our culture we don't face mass persecution and so we can fit in and we try to. Well, verse 16 warns us that while we may think it's a small thing, Jesus does not. Repent, therefore, commands the risen Christ. Otherwise, I will come to you and will fight against them, the sword of my mouth. Now, note, he distinguishes, the whole church is to repent for the ungodliness. There's a sense in which we're all responsible. Don't think that your behavior has no impact on those around you. God views us as a church family. He warns the whole church about the behavior of some for tolerating it. But he does distinguish. He says, uh, repent you, but I will come against them. And he will fight against them with the sword of his mouth. Which is a very, very interesting phrase because of what happened to Balaam. As Balaam goes to curse the Israelites, he's met by an angel of God, who he sees barring his way, bearing a drawn sword. And then in Numbers 31.8, we read, Balaam was killed with the sword. Throughout the Bible, the sword is the emblem of justice. It is, if you look at the, the statue above the old bailey of justice, a sword in one hand and the scales of justice in the other. And so when it says he will come against them with the sword of his mouth, it means he will execute judgment. In other words, God will come. The Lord Jesus will come and he will speak to this church. If it does not repent, he will speak to those who have sinfully compromised and have turned away from him and he will speak the words guilty. And those words will determine their eternal destiny. That is a far worse fate than an earthly sword. So what is the remedy? Always there's a remedy for the struggles we face in these letters. Stand fast and look ahead. Look at what Jesus reveals about himself at the beginning and what he promises at the end. Uh, The first thing in verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. In other words, it's not our culture that cuts God's word into shape according to the mores, the accepted values of our culture. Now it's God's word that cuts through the values of our culture revealing truth. We need to remember that Jesus' words are authoritative. We don't get to cut and choose what we like and don't like in his word. His word cuts through our values and our lives. Every word of Jesus, every word of the Bible is to be obeyed. Now look at what's uh, promised in verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. A wonderful promise to a compromised church. The victorious one in the seven letters is always the one who doesn't give in to fear or compromise. It's the one who follows the the lamb who's been slain, the one who suffers and struggles but clings faithfully on and shares in the resurrection glory of the one who suffered and now is risen. And the one who stands fast is promised a white stone and a new name. A white stone and a new name. Now the new name I think picks up on the promises that Isaiah makes. You can follow it up if you want later in Isaiah 62.2 and 65.15. And the newness is about the fulfillment of prophecy. A new stage in God's prophecies is fulfilled the final stage is fulfilled and salvation comes and in salvation God makes us new and we're given a new name because he's made you a new person if you trust in Jesus the old is gone God has made you new you have a new identity Now, the white stone is less certain. Um, There are a couple of different options. Um, Historians of the time tell us that sometimes a white stone was used in court to indicate innocence. So it might be uh, you're given uh, a white stone that affirms that you are righteous, that you are pure. How wonderful to have something solid with that uh, tied to it. Uh, But perhaps more likely, more often they were used as a token for entry. White stones uh, would be used, carved stones, as a token for entry into theatre or whatever. And so here is the promise of God, that your name will change from sinner to son or daughter of God. And that you will be given an invitation to the great feast. Like Charlie's golden ticket, you will be given a white stone. And you won't get to the reception, oh my goodness, is my name on the list? No, no, you have your invitation with your name written on it. The temptation to compromise is real, let's be honest, for all of us, but so is the reward for obedience. Compromise will lead us on the broad road that Jesus talked of, the road that most seem to be on, happily living their lives, walking, running this way. But if we follow, we will live lives that are accepted and applauded by those around us, but lives that from the perspective of heaven look dull, and mediocre and rather meaningless. And that may well end in death. And so Jesus warns us don't walk towards condemnation. Don't walk towards that verdict. Have a greater ambition about you than just fitting in. Walk the other way. Walk in the narrow way that few are on, the the way that goes against the crowd, the way of obeying Jesus in everything, even in the small things. Yep, you might well miss out on all sorts of experiences and invitations in this life. But the reward will more than make up for it. Your invitation to heaven is secure and solid. It has been carved and it will be given to you with the new name. Your name, the name given to you by God, the name that says you are no longer a sinner, you are righteous, you are forgiven. You are a son or daughter of God, and you will be with him in his family, in his paradise forever. Let's pray. Our Father God, the truth is that all of us face this temptation to compromise. We, we want to fit in. It's hard to be different Forgive us, Father, for the times when we have convinced ourselves that some things that you command or that you prohibit just aren't that important. Help us to obey the Lord Jesus, whatever the cost. Help us to remember that his word is the sword. And help us most of all to look forward to that wonderful promise, the new name, the white stone, and the eternal party that we have access to through it. Father God, we pray that our lives would not be compromised little lives that look no different from the world. But we pray that we would be those who make a difference, who are salt and who are light and who from the perspective of heaven are living gloriously. Amen.